From New York, this is Democracy Now! We recognize that cluster munitions create a risk of civilian harm from unexploded ordnance. This is why we've the defer- deferred the decision for as long as we could. But there is also a massive risk of civilian harm if Russian troops and tanks roll over Ukrainian positions and take more Ukrainian territory and subjugate more Ukrainian civilians. The United States is facing outrage at home and worldwide over its decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine. We'll speak with Human Rights Watch and with Norman Solomon, author of the new book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Then to Tennessee. Late Friday night, a federal appeals court stayed an injunction that had paused Tennessee's anti-trans law that banned gender-affirming care. Now the law is in effect, and families across Tennessee are scrambling, and families across the country are wondering what this means for their medical care. We'll speak with the ACLU's Chase Strangio about this major setback for trans rights, and with Tennessee Lookout editor Holly McCall in Nashville about how the state's attorney general demanded Vanderbilt University Medical Center hand over medical records for patients at its clinic for gender-affirming care. We'll also speak to Democratic State Senator Sarah McBride, the highest-ranking trans-elected official in the U.S. She's now running to be the first openly transgender member of Congress. Too many politicians want to divide us, to tell us that teachers, doctors, even our own neighbors are the enemy. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden declared the U.S.-U.K. relationship as rock solid as he meets with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in London today, ahead of the two-day NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. Over the weekend, Sunak told reporters the U.K. opposes cluster munitions as a signatory to the international convention banning their use. Biden's decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine has sparked intense criticism, including from the U.N., due to the danger they pose to civilians. We'll have more on cluster munitions after headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky stepping up his campaign for NATO membership. On Friday, he visited Turkey. As President Recep Tayyip Erdogan stated, Ukraine deserves NATO membership. Zelensky said he hopes to expedite Ukraine's accession to NATO and get clear security guarantees during this week's summit. Meanwhile, President Biden told CNN Sunday Ukraine would not be ready to join the alliance until Russia's invasion, which marked its 500th day Saturday, is over. I don't think there is unanimity in NATO about whether or not to bring Ukraine into the NATO family now, at this moment. The U.N. is urging parties to prioritize global food security and ensure the Black Sea grain deals extended allowing the continued export of food and fertilizer from Ukrainian ports. Russia's threatened to quit the deal, which is due to expire in a week, July 17th. 
President Biden said Friday the U.S. has destroyed the last of its arsenal of banned chemical weapons in a claim corroborated by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Under the Chemical Weapons Convention, which took effect in 1997, the U.S. was supposed to have destroyed its vast stockpile of chemical munitions, including the nerve agents VX and Sarin, by 2012. U.S. law enforcement agencies continue to stockpile and deploy large quantities of tear gas, a chemical weapon that's banned in warfare. In Texas, the white nationalist gunman who killed 23 people at an El Paso Walmart in 2019 has been sentenced to 90 consecutive life terms after pleading guilty to federal hate crimes and weapons charges. The gunman still faces murder charges in a state trial that could bring him the death penalty. The mass shooting nearly four years ago was the deadliest attack on the Latinx community in modern U.S. history. Shortly before the massacre, the shooter published a racist online manifesto echoing President Trump's rhetoric at about an invasion of immigrants crossing the southern border. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry sounding the alarm after scientists reported the Earth logged its fourth hottest days in recorded human history last week. If you listen to the scientists, which not enough people are, mm. the last week they have described as terrifying and as uncharted territory. When you see the risks of what is happening already with global ice melt, with challenges of fires, of uh, mudslides, of the heat, people dying from the level of heat, the quality of air, mm -hmm. people are dying around the world in the millions, by the way, about eight million people a year die from that. In Pakistan, authorities report at least 50 people have been killed in floods and landslides since the start of the monsoon season, June 25th. In India, at least 18 people were killed over the weekend as torrential rains swept northern parts of the country. Here in the United States, a massive, slow-moving storm system brought torrential rains to northeastern states Sunday, where officials warned flooding could rival 2011's Hurricane Irene. One person died of drowning in New York's Hudson Valley, which received up to eight inches of rain. In Tennessee, a panel of federal appeals court judges is allowing a new state law banning gender-affirming care for transgender youth to take effect immediately. The measure had been previously blocked by a lower court following a lawsuit filed by the ACLU on behalf of three families and a doctor. Saturday's ruling marks the first time a federal court has allowed a ban on gender-affirming care to be enforced in the United States. Similar legislation has been blocked by federal courts in Arkansas, Alabama, Florida, Indiana, and Kentucky. We'll have more and this story later in the broadcast will go to Nashville. In Sudan, nearly two dozen people were killed Saturday in military airstrikes in a residential area of Amdurman, Sudan's most populous city. It was one of the deadliest attacks in an urban area since fighting erupted in April between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces. At least 17 other people, including five children, were killed in an army air raid in Khartoum last month. The U.N.'s warned Sudan is on the brink of a full-scale civil war, as Egypt is hosting talks in Cairo this week on how to end the violence. The Pentagon says U.S. forces killed at least 10 al-Shabaab fighters in overnight airstrikes in a remote area of Somalia Saturday. Separately, the Pentagon said Sunday a U.S. drone strike killed Islamic State leader Osama al-Mahajir in eastern Syria. U.S. Central Command said in a statement no civilians were killed in the drone strike, but said it was assessing reports of a civilian injury. The claims could not be independently verified. CENTCOM said the U.S. strike was carried out by the same MQ-9 drones that were harassed by Russian military aircraft in separate incidents last week in Syrian airspace. In Mexico, 
Another journalist has been found dead. Luis Martin Sanchez Iñiguez, a staff writer for the newspaper La Jornada, had been missing since Wednesday. His body was found Saturday near the city of Tepic in the state of Nayarit. Local officials said his body showed signs of violence, with two handwritten signs affixed to his corpse, though they didn't reveal what the messages said. The Netherlands government collapsed on Friday after failing to reach an agreement on stricter rules for asylum seekers. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte said he's quitting politics but will serve as a caretaker leader until general elections are held in November. His ruling coalition came apart after two parties objected to plans by Rutte to restrict the rights of migrants whose asylum claims have already been approved, barring them from reuniting with their children. Ruta has denied those reports. Rights groups have blasted his government for closing government-run asylum centers and for dangerous and unsanitary conditions at existing centers that violate European Union standards. An Afghan U.S. military interpreter who fled Afghanistan after the Taliban takeover 2021 was shot dead last week while working as a Lyft driver in Washington, D.C. 31-year-old Nasrat Ahmadiyar had resettled in Virginia with his wife and four children, the youngest just 15 months old. A crowdfunding campaign has been set up to help them. A report last year by the group Gig Workers Rising found at least 50 drivers for Uber, Lyft and DoorDash were killed between 2017 and early 2022. Here in New York, protesters rallied in front of the U.N. headquarters Friday, demanding the release of 62-year-old Palestinian prisoner, writer and organizer Walid Dhaka, who has been in Israeli custody since 1986. Dhaka completed his term for the 1984 killing of an Israeli soldier, Moshe Tamam, this year. But he was sentenced to two additional years in 2017 for smuggling phone devices into Ketziot prison. This is organizer Munir Atala speaking at Friday's actions outside the U.N. Walid uh, has developed a, a rare form of bone marrow cancer, and he has essentially been dealt a death sentence by the Israeli courts because, uh, by the Israeli prison systems, because uh, he's being denied medical care for this life-threatening cancer. Um, and his family has also been denied visitation to see him. Uh, so we call he's in a state of crisis, and we call on them uh, to release him immediately. And we're pushing the UN to uh, to push the Israeli regime to do so. President Biden announced new measures Friday to lower health care costs by cracking down on so-called junk insurance plans, which were expanded under the Trump administration, and which typically don't cover so-called pre-existing conditions. The proposed rules take aim at short-term plans by limiting their duration to just a few months and mandating they clearly disclose the limits of the coverage provided. And a judge in Oklahoma has dismissed a reparations lawsuit from the last three living survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, in which a white mob burned down what was known as Black Wall Street, the thriving African-American neighborhood of Greenwood. An estimated 300 black Americans were killed. The three plaintiffs, Lassie Benningfield Randall, Viola Fletcher and Hughes Van Ellis, all over 100 years old now, could still appeal the ruling. Next month, a 109-year-old Viola Fletcher is releasing her memoir, Don't Let Them Bury My Story. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United States is facing questions at home and worldwide over its decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine. The weapons release smaller so-called bomblets over a wide area and often leave unexploded munitions that threaten the lives of civilians for years to come. 
They are banned under the Convention on Cluster Munitions, an international treaty signed by 123 countries, though not signed by the United States, Ukraine or Russia. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan defended the Biden administration's move Friday. We recognize that cluster munitions create a risk of civilian harm from unexploded ordnance. This is why we've the defer deferred the decision for as long as we could. But there is also a massive risk of civilian harm if Russian troops and tanks roll over Ukrainian positions and take more Ukrainian territory and subjugate more Ukrainian civilians. Ukraine would not be using these munitions in some foreign land. This is their country they're defending. These are their citizens they're protecting. And they are motivated to use any weapon system they have in a way that minimizes risks to those citizens. The Pentagon claims the cluster bombs that's sending to, Iran, to Ukraine have a failure rate of just over 2 percent, but the Pentagon's own statements suggest the cluster munitions include older grenades with a known dud rate of 14 percent or more. Dissent within the Democratic Party to Biden's decision is being led by California Congressmember Barbara Lee, who's running to replace the retiring senator, Dianne Feinstein, and was the sole vote against the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. Congressmember Lee spoke on CNN Sunday. We know what takes place in terms of cluster bombs uh, being very dangerous to civilians. Uh, they don't always immediately explode. Uh, children can step on them. That, that's a line we should not cross. I think the president's been uh, doing a good job managing uh, this uh, war, uh, this Putin aggressive war against uh, Ukraine. But I think that this uh, should not happen. He had to ask for a waiver under the Foreign Assistance Act just to do it, because we have been preventing the use of cluster bombs since, uh, I believe, uh, 2010. Today, President Biden's in Britain ahead of the NATO summit this week in Lithuania. He met with U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who noted the U.K. as a signatory to the Convention on Cluster Munitions. Well, the UK is signatory to a convention which prohibits the production or use of cluster munitions and discourages their use. We will continue to do our part to support Ukraine against Russia's illegal and unprovoked invasion. We've done that by providing heavy battle tanks and most recently long-range weapons. You know, and hopefully all countries can continue to support Ukraine. Russia's act of barbarism is causing untold suffering to millions of people. Several Southeast Asian nations still cluttered with cluster bombs the United States dropped on them during the Vietnam War have also raised alarm. A Laotian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, the Laotian Ministry of Foreign Affairs said Monday it opposed Biden's move, quote, as the world's largest victim of cluster munitions. And the Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen said Sunday, quote, it would be the greatest danger for Ukrainians for many years or up to 100 years of cluster bombs are used in Russian-occupied areas in the territory of Ukraine. This comes as a new report by Human Rights Watch on cluster bombs used by Russia and Ukraine documents they repeatedly killed and injured civilians. For more, we're joined by two guests. Mary Wareham is advocacy director of the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch and editor of the annual Cluster Ammunition Monitor. Also with us is Norman Solomon, executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy and co-founder of RootsAction.org. His piece in The Hill is headlined, The U.S. Should Not Provide Cluster Munitions to Ukraine. His new book, 
War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Mary Wareham, we're going to begin with you in uh, Wellington, New Zealand. If you can respond to the U.S. decision, what does this mean for the world that the U.S., the most powerful country on Earth, says it will supply cluster bombs to Ukraine? Thanks, Amy. This is an appalling decision for, by the Biden administration to transfer potentially hundreds of thousands of artillery rounds containing uh, potentially millions of unreliable uh, submunitions that have got a high, higher dud rate than we believe the Pentagon uh, has disclosed. You mentioned 14 percent may fail to explode. Um, you know, Human Rights Watch objected to this transfer due to the likelihood of civilian harm. Uh, and we do not say that lightly, but after issuing 10 reports detailing uh, the extensive use of cluster munition rockets and missiles by Russian forces since the very first day of the conflict. Ukrainian forces have also used cluster munitions in fewer numbers, but what our report released last week shows uh, is that they had used cluster munition rockets, firing them into a city in the east called Izium uh, over a period of nearly six months during 2022, when it was under Russian occupation. Uh, and the stories are pretty sad uh, and horrific. Uh, people who were uh, killed in their homes during the cluster munition strike of a, a woman cooking outside in her garden who was killed uh, while together with her young daughter and her mother, other neighbours sitting on a park bench outside of their apartment building who were hit in a strike. These are all casualties from the time of use, which is one reason why cluster munitions are prohibited. And of course, the other is that the cluster munitions results in unexploded ordnance. Uh, many submunitions fail to detonate as, as intended. Uh, and that leaves a legacy of contamination, which I think Lao, the Lao foreign ministry statements and the Cambodian prime minister have referred to quite eloquently. Uh, they do not want to see the horror of cluster munitions, you know, get any worse in Ukraine because they know full well that it will take years to clear up the remnants. And talk specifically, Mary, about why children are so often the victims of these unexploded, I hate to say bomblets because it almost sounds sort of cute, which of course it isn't. Mm. Some call them submunitions, and the U.S. military calls the DPICM uh, submunitions grenades, but they are. They're small, uh, battery-sized, and some have got uh, features that are appealing to children, such as ribbons that are used to stabilize the munition uh, as it disperses in the air. Others have got fins, uh, interesting shapes, uh, colors, uh, small size, uh, and cluster munitions, submunitions from them tend to land on the ground or bury into the ground, uh, and that's where uh, children come across them. Uh, children are, by their very nature, curious, uh, and they, there's going to have to be some extremely thorough risk education uh, for Ukrainian children uh, for the years to come to keep them safe from these remnants. In other countries, children are also injured uh, while they are collecting scrap metal to sell on. This is particularly uh, common in Southeast Asia, and it's yet another reason why children account for the vast majority, well, the, they account for more than half of the casualties from the remnants, and uh, the vast majority of victims of cluster munitions are civilian, not military.
And then talk about this meeting that President Biden just had with uh, Rishi Sunak, the British prime minister, before they head to Vilnius, Lithuania, for the NATO summit. Um, uh, you don't know what they said in that meeting, but uh, Rishi Sunak, the conservative prime minister, did come out with a statement this weekend because he had to, because Britain, unlike the U.S., Ukraine and Russia, is a signatory to the cluster bomb ban, the international mm. cluster bomb ban that are signed by 123 nations which says you can't produce them, you can't promote them. Um, and that's significant. You have to discourage the use of them. And yet here, a day or two after President Biden makes his announcement, they meet. Yes, the United Kingdom served as the president of the Convention on Cluster Munitions last year. It did a huge amount of work to promote uh, the convention with countries that have not yet joined. And in, uh, in February, Nigeria ratified the convention. We understand that other African states that have not yet done so are in the process of uh, preparing to join the international convention. So that's the kind of work that the UK has been doing in support of the convention. So I can imagine that the prime minister would want to remind President Biden of that. Uh, and we see, you know, more than 10 countries' statements. I've seen there's more, uh, but we've seen other world leaders reaffirming their country's status as a member of the Convention on Class Munitions because, and, and, and that's important because um, the treaty doesn't just prohibit use, production, stockpiling and trade. It has the very strong provision prohibiting any assistance with those banned activities. So countries that are uh, U.S. allies uh, that have signed the treaty that are trying to support Ukraine had better be very careful when it comes to assisting in any way with the transit of the U.S. cluster munitions headed for Ukraine uh, and, and with their facilitating their use once they get into the country. That is strictly off limits to countries that are part of the the Convention on Cluster Munitions, and that's why they have to tell Biden this. And can you talk about uh, the report you just put out saying it's not just Russia that's been using cluster bombs in Ukraine, it's Ukraine. And where do those cluster bombs come from that Ukraine is currently using? So Ukraine uh, inherited a, a stockpile of old Soviet uh, cluster munitions during the breakup of the Soviet Union, and it used those cluster munition rockets in 2014 and 15 in the east, uh, and we believe in the current conflict as well, but now the, the, apparently it has run out of those types of cluster munitions, and it needs more, uh, more, more ammunition for its artillery systems, its artillery pr projectiles. Cluster munitions you know, can be dropped from the air, as you've seen in previous conflicts, but in Ukraine, the vast majority appear to be launched from the ground in rockets and missiles and artillery and mortar uh, projectiles. Ukraine's use has been uh, far less extensive compared to what Russia has done, but Ukraine has used cluster munitions in Ukraine since the very beginning of the conflict last, Feb last March uh, was the first use recorded. And the United Nations also went into the same area that Human Rights Watch did last year uh, and, and saw the remnants of cluster munitions there uh, and reached the same conclusion that Ukrainian forces were likely responsible for that cluster munition use. So we were disappointed to see Ukraine uh, deny that it used cluster munitions in Izium in 2022. Uh, it has admitted that that anti-personnel landmines may have been used and is studying a report from Human Rights Watch detailing that use of another prohibited weapon. Um, but, you know, these weapons are prohibited for very good reason, and that's due to the harm caused to civilians. And this is why we do not wish to see any more cluster munitions used by any side to the, the conflict uh, in Ukraine due to the, the, the civilian casualties now and into the future. I wanted to go to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan defending the Biden administration's decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. 
Russia has been using cluster munitions with high dud or failure rates of between 30 and 40 percent. In this environment, Ukraine has been requesting cluster munitions in order to defend its own sovereign territory. The cluster munitions that we would provide have dud rates far below what Russia is doing, is, is providing, not higher than 2.5 percent. So if you could respond to what he's talking about, you know, the dud rate being, um, well, what creates those um, those bomblets, if you will, those essentially what become landmines. Um, he's saying that Russia and I heard Biden say something like Russia's dud rate was like 30 percent. And to show that we're humane, ours is only one percent. But The Times pointed out uh, the U.S. dud rate is as high as 14 percent. Can you talk about the significance of all of this? I mean, we were seriously hoping for some actual details in the announcement on Friday from the from the Department of Defense as to how it reached the the, the very the, the 2.35, you know, no higher than that dud rate that they're claiming because they're not releasing any of the testing or any of the background information, any of the data on this. And the 14% dud rate number comes from the Pentagon's own historic documents that they have published in the past. So we're unsure why in this case the Pentagon cannot uh, be much more transparent about the, the, how it reached uh, its numbers, um, but dud rates are only part of the equation here. There's a lot more that has to be taken into consideration. Uh, and also in, in operations and warfare, uh, dud rates are often much higher. Uh, the types of cluster munitions that the U.S. is sending uh, also do not work well in, in muddy areas, areas where it has been wet, where the, where the ground is moist, um, you know, and this is what we've seen in Ukraine with the flooding uh, in recent uh, weeks. So, so there's um, all sorts of challenges with the the um, with the transfer, but kind of pointing to the technical fix of you know somehow we're going to you know deal with this through dud rates uh, is not an adequate response or answer at all. Mary Wareham of Human Rights Watch. I also want to bring in Norm Solomon of the Institute for Public Accuracy and RootsAction.org. Uh, your new book, Norm, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Can you talk about how this is playing in the United States um, and talk about it being a Democratic president, President Biden, who has, though admitting there is pushback, um, he's made this decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine? Well, this is playing with a message from the White House, do as we say, not as we do, to Russia and really to the world. Last year, the White House said that use of cluster munitions deserves to be in the category of war crime. Now they're saying, just fine, no problem. And this is symptomatic of a mentality, what Dr. King called the madness of militarism, that blends with a kind of doublethink, as George Orwell called it. This is a way of saying that we want to run the world, we make the rules, we break the rules. It's also a way of saying that when civilians are killed and it's done by an enemy state, that's terrible. We condemn it because we have the high moral ground. But when we are accessories to the crime, when we do it, as the U.S. did in the invasion of Iraq, uh, using 1.8 to 2 million uh, so-called bomblets in the first few weeks of that invasion, when we do it, it's A-OK. And this is one reason why I called the book War Made Invisible, because there are so many layers 
in which the United States engages in warfare directly and indirectly, and it gets sanitized, it gets made invisible, it gets spun, as the White House in the last 72 hours is in overdrive. This is a willingness to engage with the world and say, we get to define what lives matter and what lives don't. And I think this is the tacit messaging coming from the Biden administration, especially in the last few days in this context, that we are supporting the human rights of civilians in Ukraine and elsewhere, except when they don't matter, because then we have a tactical strategic reason otherwise. Part of the messaging is, oh, if the Ukrainian government kills Ukrainian uh, civilians, that's okay, because that's for their own good. And Amy, I think one thing that needs to be really pointed out and thought about deeply that I have not seen in the corporate media whatsoever is that the same logic that the Biden White House is using to try to justify this horrific decision can be applied and is applied in the strategic doctrine of both Russia and the United States. We've been hearing for weeks from the rumblings on Capitol Hill and from the administration that Ukraine is running out of weapons. And we have all of these cluster munitions stockpiled in the United States, and they're not doing any good. Why put them to waste? We should send them to Ukraine, which is the logic that ultimately prevailed. And the reason given is that Ukraine might lose the war. And so if the so-called conventional warfare is not going well, and it looks like the back is up against the wall, we need to use this weapon that before we had said was absolutely abhorrent. Well, where does that logic lead? It leads to use of tactical nuclear weapons, because the doctrine of the U.S. and Russia is that they reserve the right to use nuclear weapons to be the first to use nuclear weapons if their conventional war is not going well. You've written an interesting piece in The Hill, Norm. Um, RFK Jr.'s campaign is getting a boost from Biden's hawkishness. We also just played a clip of Congressmember Barbara Lee, who's running for Dianne Feinstein's seat in the Senate, who is one of, what, something like 19 um, House Democrats who've written a letter condemning the decision to send cluster bombs. Put those two together, the position of the Democratic Party on this, as we move into this presidential election year. Well, those 19 Democrats should have spoken up a long time ago. I wrote that piece in the middle of May for The Hill, and already Adam Smith, the ranking member of the Democratic Party on the House Armed Services Committee, was floating the idea publicly that the U.S. should send cluster bombs, cluster munitions to Ukraine. Almost complete silence. Uh, the Intercept asked for comment from uh, members of the uh, Progressive Caucus, from the House Armed Services Committee, Democrats got almost no response whatsoever. So this is a bit late. That statement from Democrats, yes, it's good. They should have been screaming bloody murder weeks and weeks ago as the Biden administration moved towards this decision. And I think this decision should be put in a context, a context that ever since the Biden administration withdrew the last troops from Afghanistan almost two years ago, it has been moving more and more to recalibrate its militarism around the planet. So, for instance, military budgets through the roof. 
a year ago, almost exactly, fist bumping the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia while his country was continuing to slaughter people with U.S. help in Yemen. We had just last month a red carpet treatment of uh, Prime Minister Modi from India at the White House and Capitol Hill, somebody with egregious, terrible human rights violations, particularly against Muslims and others in India. What's the common thread here? It's a willingness to sacrifice human beings and human rights on behalf of the strategic interests of the United States. In the first case, it's the Middle East against Iran and against Russia, against Syria and so forth. And in the other instance, we're looking at against China. So what we're really seeing is a Biden administration that from the standpoint of believing in diplomacy rather than military confrontation and possible conflagration, it's been getting worse and worse for at least the last 22 months, has refused to re-engage with the Iran nuclear deal and get it done. And I think that's an example of where the damage that the Trump administration did is not being cleaned up. It's being ratified by the Biden administration. And likewise, we have that with the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which, you know, we who are uh, older uh, can remember back in the 1980s was a victory for the peace movement around the world. In the U.S., in Germany, in England, we got the INF Treaty passed. We pulled the Reagan administration kicking and screaming to agree with that, with Gorbachev, and get it done, the intermediate-range missile ban for nuclear forces in Europe. When Trump undid that, then Biden came back in, and there's no action whatsoever. So I would just summarize to say that we have an increasingly militaristic Biden administration, and the Democratic Party from the top is either going along with it on Capitol Hill or sort of mumbling. I have to say that I wish that Barbara Lee had been more outspoken earlier. I wish there was a willingness at the top of the Democratic Party hierarchy in the House and Senate to apply the same standards that have been applied sometimes to Republican administrations. And the significance of, um, if you can talk more about the Bush administration making this decision to send the uh, cluster bombs to Ukraine on the same day as the OPCW, that's the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, confirmed the U.S. had destroyed its chemical weapons stockpile. Okay, 10 years after it said it would. Yes, uh, the Biden administration and uh Biden's appointees uh, do brag about and sometimes justified the good steps that they've been part of. But what they uh, give with one hand to humanity, they take away with many other hands. And with the military budget uh, in con continuing to rise, and ironically enough, uh, the time of the celebration of the, of the Prince of Peace, uh, late December for the last couple of years, uh, President Biden very ceremoniously and proudly signs a record military budget, which should not be called a defense budget, lowercase d. And this is, the, this is the death train that we're on. I think we should be very clear about this. And I say this as somebody who believes that we have to defeat the neo-fascist Republican Party. The only way to do that practically uh, is to support a Democratic ticket. That's the real world we're in. But this administration is pushing the envelope towards more and more military confrontation, with Russia, with China, and the logical endpoint of that journey is nuclear conflagration. Norm Solomon, I want to thank you so much for being with us. It's also very interesting that uh, 
President Biden is meeting with King Charles right now uh, as we are doing this broadcast. And, you know, his late wife, Princess Di, was one of the people who led the campaign against landmines around the world. Norman Solomon is with the Institute for Public Accuracy and RootsAction.org. His new book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. And thanks so much to Mary Wareham, advocacy director of Arms Division of Human Rights Watch, editor of Cluster Munition Monitor. Next up, we go to Tennessee, where a federal appeals court will allow an anti-trans law to go into effect that bans gender-affirming care. We'll also look at how the state's attorney general demanded Vanderbilt University Medical Center hand over medical records for patients at its clinic for gender-affirming care. Back in 30 seconds. Why Does the Earth Give Us People to Love? by Kara Jackson. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Tennessee, where a panel of federal appeals court judges ruled two to one late Friday to allow a new state law banning gender-affirming care for transgender youth to take effect immediately. The anti-trans measure was previously blocked by a lower court following an ACLU lawsuit on behalf of three families and doctor. The ruling marks the first time a federal court has allowed a ban on gender-affirming care to be enforced in the U.S. The decision came in response to an emergency appeal from Republican Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Scrimetti, who called the ruling a big win. It ignores the guidance of major medical organizations, similar legislation enacted by Republican-controlled legislatures in at least 20 states since 2021, has been blocked by federal courts in Arkansas, Alabama, Florida, Indiana, and Kentucky. For more, we go to New York to be joined by Chase Strangio, Deputy Director for Trans Justice with the ACLU LGBTQ and HIV Project. And in Nashville, Tennessee, we're going to Holly McCall, Editor-in-Chief of the nonprofit news outlet Tennessee Lookout. Uh, Chase, respond to this ruling. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much. It, it's a, it is truly a, a devastating ruling, and and it is in some senses feeling deliberately obtuse. The court had to distort legal precedent, the underlying factual record, and really common sense in order to rule against the transgender adolescents, their parents, and their doctors. There are large portions of this decision that have no citations because there's no citations to be had. Um, and of course, what this means practically is that this law that goes against everything we know about gender affirming care that goes against the well-studied views of every major medical association is now in effect. Families are terrified. And this is, of course, something that's happening across the country. Thankfully, when judges actually look at the evidence, they have been blocking these laws. And we are going to, of course, continue to fight this uh, decision on appeal. Explain exactly what happened Friday night, how you learned of this and why this is so unusual. People might be saying, 
There are anti-trans bills being passed across the country. What makes this so different? Yeah, so what's happening across the country is we have these bills that are being pushed and passed by Republican-led uh, legislatures, of course, gerrymandered and voter-suppressed legislatures. And in this situation, you had a court, the district court, block the piece of legislation. Uh, the attorney general of Tennessee then filed for an emergency stay at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. This is sort of akin to what we see in the shadow docket at the Supreme Court, where you're just getting these rushed opinions in the course of perhaps 24 hours or less in some instances, putting this uh, this uh, decision from the district court on a pause while the case is proceeding. And of course, this then allows the law to go into effect, but the court isn't close to the record. There were hundreds and hundreds of pages of expert declarations, plaintiff declarations filed in this case. And in fact, the appeals court admits they may have got it wrong because it was rushed, which means, of course, they shouldn't have done this in the first instance. This was not a comprehensive briefed appeal. This was an abbreviated process wherein the court interjected itself and again, in many cases, had no citations and admitted that it may have got it wrong. But the consequence of that is that hundreds of trans adolescents in Tennessee are now without the medical care that they need. And talk about the medical organizations that are opposed to this. Yeah, every major medical association in the United States has opposed this type of legislation. And that includes the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the Endocrine Society, the Pediatric Endocrine Society, the American Psychiatric Association. We're talking every mainstream medical association in the United States is opposed to this legislation and believes and knows from evidence and clinical experience that this is going to cause very serious harms to transgender adolescents. And of course, the states are raising arguments in defense of these laws that make absolutely no sense when tested by courts that are actually looking at the evidence. Arguments like the care has side effects, when we know that every medication has side effects. No intervention is perfect, but that doesn't mean that we have states banning that form of, uh, of care. And of course, these are the same states and the same individuals that pushed for uh, the permission to have ivermectin to treat COVID when it had absolutely no evidence of efficacy and are pushing against vaccines and masks in schools. And so this is, of course, we know to be a political argument in these states that are just categorically opposed to transgender people living full and thriving lives. I want to bring in Holly McCall, editor-in-chief of the nonprofit news outlet Tennessee Lookout, which has been following this case, as well as Tennessee Attorney General's office demanding that Vanderbilt University Medical Center hand over medical records of patients at its clinic for gender-affirming care. Holly, can you talk about the significance of this um, and the fact that Tennessee law grants the attorney general's office authority to issue civil investigative demands? Explain what we're talking about here. Patients information is being handed over to uh, the attorney general. Yes, and this attorney general is the definition of an activist. You know, we often hear Republican legislators who do not like judicial decisions talk about an activist judge or a judge who is legislating from the bench. But I think in reality, we have an attorney general who is an activist AG. He has spoken at 
anti-transgender events that were held in Nashville. He has not only requested the records of patients at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, which he claims is part of a Medic- Medicare, or excuse me, Medicaid investigation, uh, Medicaid fraud, but he's also asked for records of people who volunteered to be buddies to people going through uh, gender-affirming care. He's asking for this broad swathe of documents that really would have nothing to do with Medicaid, uh, with Medicaid fraud. And asking for emails sent to and from a public portal for questions about LGBTQ health? That is correct. And I think it's clear that, uh, as Chase remarked, this is not just a Tennessee issue. This sort of activity is going on um, around the country. There is obviously an effort to target LGBTQ Americans. Uh, And this attorney general, you know, he set up a special litigation unit just to take on issues like this to address issues that could be addressed at the federal level. Uh, So this is, I think this is extraordinary, even for him. We have not seen this kind of, I think, a gross overreach into people's personal lives. I have an acquaintance whose daughter volunteers, has sent in a couple of emails. She is now worried that her records are going to be open to the state, worried about what might happen to her. Will she face persecution? She is not an LGBTQ American. She is a Tennessean who wants to be supportive of her friends in the LGBT community. And now she feels that she is at risk. And Vanderbilt notified patients over the Juneteenth weekend uh, that their confidential medical records are now in the possession of the state attorney general. Um, Your newspaper, Tennessee Lookout, you called Vanderbilt to say, ask them if, in fact, they are handing over these records? Yes, we did. One of our reporters, Anita Wadwani, has been tracking this very carefully. Vanderbilt has been a little cagey about what records they handed over. Um, they are very—Vanderbilt is not the easiest institution to communicate with, and so we still don't know exactly what they have handed over and what they have not After we published our original story on this, they did come back and say, well, we didn't hand everything over that easily, but we still don't know exactly what they have handed over. You know, Vanderbilt University Medical Center has been in the sights of the right wing for almost a year now. In September of last year, uh, Matt Walsh with the very right wing outlet, The Daily Wire, posted um, you know, spliced videos online, heavily edited videos online of Vanderbilt doctors. Uh, talking about transgender and gender-affirming care. And, you know, in one clip, you had a physician who was saying, talking about the financial aspects of gender-affirming care. Well, that is kind of what started the whole ball rolling in Tennessee, because then the right took that to say, oh, Vanderbilt is just trying to make money. They are permitting genital surgery, uh, top surgery to just about any you know, minor who comes through the center. Mm-hmm. Of course, that is not true. They are not doing any genital surgeries, but they have been on the hot seat for more than a year. And I think at this point, they are in a cover your, you know what mode. You have uh, the prominent trans activist Roberto Che Espinoza leaving Tennessee. Um, you're the editor in chief of the newspaper Tennessee Lookout. How often is this happening? Are people just as, uh, as Roberto Che Espinosa said, it's not a way to live? You know, it's, it's no way to live. And he's not the only transgender individual who is leaving the state. We have a story coming this week about families who are leaving 
the state of Tennessee, including a friend of mine who has a 15-year-old transgender child, and they do not feel safe to live in this state anymore. Um, and I can't say that I blame them. If you cannot access care, if you are under a microscope, if the legislature and the attorney general has targeted your, your family, I think it's clear that this is probably not the, a safe place to live. And finally, um, let me go back to Chase Strangio. What rights to Vanderbilt Hospital, uh, this prominent hospital, not only in Tennessee, but in the country, have to just say no to handing over that information well, to the they, state attorney general? I, I think taking a step back, what's, what's important here is this is a playbook that we've seen over and over again. It looks exactly like the anti-abortion playbook from attorney generals that started to investigate medical providers, to threaten medical providers. And what we're seeing here is we have even the state of Tennessee making arguments in court that they will go after doctors who provide care when a preliminary injunction is in place, even when if it's subsequently overturned. The threats on these doctors are astounding. And this looks a lot like the anti-abortion context. And we need to be vigilant here because this has many forms. It is the legislation it is the threats from attorney generals. And of course, it's the extra legal threats of violence that are impacting our communities across the country. And this is obviously devastating for transgender people, our families and our doctors. I want to thank you both for being with us. Chase Strangio um, is uh, with the ACLU LGBTQ and HIV Project, Deputy Director for Trans Justice, and Holly McCall, Editor-in-Chief of the nonprofit news outlet Tennessee Lookout. Next up, we speak to Democratic State Senator Sarah McBride, who's now running to be the first openly transgender member of Congress. She's running from Delaware. Stay with us. Change by Anoni. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Amidst the ongoing attacks on trans rights in the United States, we end today's show with Democratic State Senator Sarah McBride of Delaware. She is the highest ranking trans elected official in the United States and is now running to be the first openly transgender member of Congress. She's vowed to address criminal justice reform, abortion rights, gun violence. This is an ad from her campaign launched in recent weeks. I'm running for Congress. My commitment is to the people in Delaware who aren't seen, who don't shout the loudest or fund political campaigns. Parents busy raising their children. Seniors worried about paying for prescription drugs. Working people struggling to keep up. Everyone deserves a member of Congress who sees them and who respects them. 
For more, we go to Wilmington, Delaware, where we're joined by Democratic State Senator Sarah McBride, also the author of her memoir, Tomorrow Will Be Different, Love, Loss, and the Fight for Trans Equality, which Joe Biden wrote the foreword to. She was the first out trans intern at the White House during the Obama-Biden administration, and Biden credits her with shaping his views on transgender rights. He spoke about her during the largest pride celebration in, in the White House last month. Uh, we welcome you to Democracy Now!, State Senator Sarah McBride. Um, we just finished talking about this devastating decision by the federal court for the trans community uh, in Tennessee. If you can respond to that and then talk about why you're running for Delaware's open house seat. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Amy. Good morning. Um, the decision that you just mentioned is a hastily written decision that, as Chase already mentioned, admits that it may be getting it wrong. It runs contrary to decisions we've seen across the country uh, at the district and appellate court level. Ultimately, these laws that seek to restrict access to healthcare, medically necessary healthcare for transgender people, the laws we're seeing censoring topics in schools, um, they are all part of a cruel and concerted agenda that is meant to distract from the fact that Republicans have absolutely no policy agenda to address the needs of workers and families in this country. This is part of an ongoing strategy that the far right wing has attempted to utilize throughout generations, which is to seek to divide and conquer. Um, and trans people are their new target. But ultimately, I think what we've seen is that in 2022, uh, and I believe in 2024, what we will see is that these types of attacks ring hollow uh, with voters. They don't speak to what's actually keeping them up at night. And ultimately, they won't be able to win at the ballot box on them. So if you do become Delaware's uh, only Congress member, what could you do about this? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm not running just to be the transgender member of Congress. I'm not running to just make history. I'm running to make a difference on all of the issues that matter to Delawareans of every background up and down this state. I'm running to guarantee affordable early childhood education to Delaware families. I'm running to build on our progress that I led here in Delaware, passing paid family and medical leave in the Delaware State Senate to make sure that we have as robust a policy as possible. I'm running to pass gun safety measures and to protect reproductive rights. But yes, Diversity in government is critical in combating these anti-trans, uh, anti-LGBTQ attacks, because ultimately, when you're not at the table, that it's much easier for you to become part of the menu. Um, and let the, the pettiness of these far-right-wing politicians contrast with our focus on progress. Let their cruelty contrast with our compassion. Let the diversity of our humanity be full, more fully seen in the halls of Congress and to help reinforce that trans people are part of the rich fabric of America, that we have something to offer to the table, that we are talented, thoughtful, effective legislators. Uh, and I think that goes a long way in filling the gap in people's minds around who trans people are, because that gap ultimately is one of the ways that the far right wing is able to pursue these attacks without them being politically fatal. This was another weekend of, well, devastating climate and gun violence. Let's take on gun violence first in the United States. Um, as Delaware's only Congress member, if you win, what would you be doing about this? 
Sure. Well, one of the reasons why I ran for the Delaware State Senate is I believed that Delaware could do more to lead the nation in combating gun violence. I was proud to be a co-sponsor and help uh, to, to pass the most significant gun safety package in Delaware state history, legislation that included an assault weapons ban, a ban on high capacity magazines, a reform of the blanket gun dealer and gun manufacturer liability shield that existed that said, even if these gun dealers and gun manufacturers demonstrated negligence, uh, they couldn't be held to account in our courts. I'm running for Congress to make sure that we're delivering that at the federal level to reform the liability shield that we see, to pass an assault weapons ban at the national level. In a small state like Delaware, we can pass that kind of policy at the state level, but it's very easy for assault weapons to come over our borders from a place like Pennsylvania where they are still legal. And so ultimately we need federal action to address gun violence. I'll be a strong, unwavering voice in favor of those types of common sense measures in the U.S. House of Representatives. And I believe that with a growing number of senators that recognize that we have to reform Senate rules and eliminate the filibuster, the next time Democrats have control of all three branch or all, both branches of government, all three, uh, the presidency, the Senate and, and, and the House, we'll be able to pass measures like an assault weapons ban. Um, President Biden signed the Defense of Marriage Act, supported it in 1996, which defined marriages between a man and a woman. But he also then, as vice president, came out ahead of President Obama in saying that he supported marriage equality. Um, he says you have shaped his view on trans rights. Talk about your conversations and how you think you've done that and what you think he could do at this point. Well, I would never— claim credit for anyone's evolution on uh, trans rights or anyone's support of, of trans rights, let alone the president of the United States. Um, I think this president has a, a big heart, as evidenced by the fact that he really led President Obama on the issue of marriage and was an early supporter of trans rights before it had even entered the, the, the consciousness politically, calling it a, a civil rights issue back in, in 2013. Um, and so this president has led long before his current term on these issues. I also think in many ways, credit goes to Bo, his son, our late attorney general here in Delaware, who I worked for uh, on his campaigns and then also worked with to pass a, a landmark non-discrimination bill here in Delaware in 2013 to protect the LGBTQ community. I think a lot of credit also goes to Bo because I think this president feels closer to Bo and Bo's legacy when he's carrying on his work. And I think he sees trans rights as part of Bo's legacy and part of Bo's work. Um, this administration from day one has made clear that they will use all of the levers of power of government at their disposal to seek to protect the LGBTQ community. Of course, sometimes that takes time. We saw that with the Trump administration, their desire to implement retrograde policies uh, without proper, proper process resulted in those policies being overturned by the courts. And so sometimes it takes time. But this administration from day one said we're going to implement the Supreme Court's Bostock decision that says sex protections include LGBTQ people. We're going to br uh, uh, put forward briefs in these challenges to these anti-trans cases. And the Justice Department has stepped up and said that these policies that we talked about earlier are both wrong and have sided with the, the LGBTQ community in those court cases. And obviously, over the next several months and years, we'll see more from this administration to step up and to stand out 
uh, for trans people's rights, for all people's rights across this country. Um, but it's really, I think, critical that we recognize the power that the executive branch has in standing up for trans people and how significant it would be for our community if in 2025 we don't have a, a pro-equality president. Um, Sarah, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Democratic State Senator Sarah McBride running for Delaware's open house seat. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. Thanks for joining us.